Hello and welcome to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, October 19th, 2023. The only podcast that separates the fact from the narrative spin. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Scott Wallace with today's top headlines. Biden suggests the Gaza hospital bombing was not Israel's fault during his historic trip. The U.S. imposes sanctions on Hamas-linked people and entities. Venezuela agrees to hold 2024 elections. The U.K. says ethnic cleansing was committed in Sudan's Darfur region. The U.S. accuses China's Air Force of risky behavior in Pacific skies. Same-sex couples are awarded public housing rights in Hong Kong. A U.S. police deputy in Georgia kills a black man who was wrongly incarcerated. A powerful PAC pulls the plug on Tim Scott's TV and digital advertising. X, formerly Twitter, will pilot a $1 per year plan for basic features. And Amazon will soon begin delivering prescription medicines by drone. Biden in Israel suggests the Gaza hospital bombing is carried out by the other team. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, the Associated Press, and NBC News. In what has been described as one of the most complicated diplomatic trips of his presidency, U.S. President Joe Biden arrived at an Israel in a state of war on Wednesday. Biden's trip marked his most forceful public showing of support for Israel since the October 7th attacks by Hamas left 1,400 people, mostly civilians, and dozens of Americans dead. But the trip also comes amid a fierce Israeli response in the Gaza Strip, including a days-long aerial bombardment campaign that health authorities in Gaza say killed upwards of 2,800 people, with another 1,200 people said to be trapped under the rubble. Those figures predate a blast at a Gaza City hospital on Tuesday, reportedly killing hundreds and triggering mass protests across the Islamic world. In a joint press conference with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Biden said, I was deeply saddened and outraged by the explosion at the hospital in Gaza yesterday. And based on what I've seen, it appears as though it was done by the other team, not you. But there's a lot of people out there who are not sure. So we have to overcome a lot of things. Biden did not elaborate on what evidence he had seen, but a U.S. official told CNN that the government hadn't yet drawn any conclusions as to who was responsible. While the question remains out on who struck the hospital, it would not be the first time Biden may have exaggerated the extent of evidence he has seen. Last week, Biden said he had personally seen photographic evidence of Hamas militants beheading children. Later, the White House walked the comments back, stating that Biden was referring to news reports. Evidence of such nature has not been published in the press, and allegations of beheadings are currently uncorroborated. While attributing the hospital strike to Hamas, Biden did come to Israel with a message urging Tel Aviv to protect Palestinian civilians and advocating for a humanitarian corridor to Gaza. I'm confident that Israel is going to act under the measure, the rules of war, Biden said in an interview before departing. There's standards that democratic institutions and countries go by, and so I'm confident that there's going to be an ability for the innocents in Gaza to be able to have access to medicine and food and water. Scott, thank you for laying out the facts on our first story. I'm going to start our first round of narrative spins with a pro-establishment narrative provided by CNN. This is one of the most complicated trips of Joe Biden's presidency. In a volatile region that's already been gripped by violence, Biden will have to avoid a wider war with Iran while pledging his support for Israel and simultaneously pushing for humanitarian aid in Gaza. And the second of four narratives is the pro-Israel narrative from the Times of Israel. 
As pointed out by Biden himself, the evidence, which Israel has and is willing to provide, is that the hospital was shelled by rockets fired by the terrorist group Islamic Jihad, not Israel Defense Forces. And we're going to keep these spins moving with a pro-Palestine narrative. And that's provided by Middle East Eye. After days of non-ending strikes on Gaza that have left the hospitals full of people, Israel escalated its trend of wiping out civilians and struck a hospital facility. Now Tel Aviv wants to assert that Palestinians are responsible. And we have a statistics-based nerd narrative from Metaculus. They say there's a 90% chance there will be an Israel-Hezbollah war by the year 2030. The U.S. Treasury sanctions Hamas-linked people and entities. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Wall Street Journal, CNN, Forbes, Fox News, and Al Jazeera. The U.S. Treasury Department announced Wednesday sanctions on a group of 10 alleged members and financial facilitators of the Palestinian militant group Hamas in response to its deadly October 7th offensive on Israel, blocking their access to funds held in the U.S., and preventing them from doing business with American people and firms. These freshly imposed sanctions target individuals based in Gaza, Algeria, Qatar, Sudan, and Turkey, allegedly involved in the group's secret $500 million investment portfolio and the Gaza-based cryptocurrency exchange and its owner. Among those hit were two senior Hamas operatives, Qatar-based Muhammad Ahmad Ab al-Daim Nasrallah and Ayman Nafal who is believed to have been killed in an airstrike in Gaza on Tuesday. According to the Treasury Department, this motive is designed to curb the revenue Hamas earns from multiple businesses that are allegedly worth millions of dollars. Further sanctions on the U.S.-designated terrorist group are reportedly expected in the coming days. These latest rounds of sanctions, which also struck the Iranian missile program and other allegedly Iran-backed groups such as Hezbollah, comes as President Biden arrived in the Middle East to meet Israeli officials. He was set to also meet with Palestinian leaders in Jordan. But those plans have collapsed after Hamas blamed Israel for an airstrike that hit a hospital in Gaza. Meanwhile, Iran's foreign minister, Hossein Amir Abdelayan, urged members of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation to immediately impose an oil embargo and other sanctions on Israel, as well as expel all Israeli ambassadors over the explosion, which the Israeli military claims to have been caused by an errant Palestinian rocket. Thanks, Adam, for those facts. We have a pro-establishment narrative from Voice of America. Hamas is a terrorist group that has carried out a brutal and unscrupulous massacre of Israeli civilians. So, the U.S. must do whatever it can to deny these terrorists the ability to raise funds for their goal of terrorizing the Israeli people. These sanctions will help disrupt the group's funding for further attacks. The establishment critical narrative is provided by Al Jazeera. Western powers may talk about international law, national sovereignty, and human rights, but all they care about is exploiting other nations, and sanctions are merely a tool to do this. It's outrageous that the U.S., which has largely maintained silent on Israeli actions against those struggling under occupation in the besieged Gaza, picks and chooses where to adhere to its rules-based order. And Metaculus has another nerd narrative prediction. They say there's a 33% chance that before the year 2024, the U.S. government will state that Iran likely helped Hamas plan the October 7th attack on Israel. The Venezuelan government agrees to hold elections in 2024. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Venezuela Analysis, Financial Times, DW, The Washington Post, and Doha News. On Tuesday, the Venezuelan government and a faction of the opposition agreed to hold presidential elections in the second half of next year following the resumption of talks after a nearly year-long hiatus. The agreement sets out 12 electoral conditions, including updating the electoral registry, enhancing balanced media coverage, and providing electoral guarantees for candidates who comply with the law and the Constitution. Both sides also agreed to allow international observers, including an EU delegation, to monitor the elections in which the Venezuelan president, Nicolas Maduro, is widely expected to run for re-election. Following the Norwegian brokered talks in Barbados, the U.S., EU, Canada, and the U.K. released a joint statement stating the agreement was needed to advance an inclusive dialogue process and the restoration of democracy in Venezuela. The Maduro government and the U.S. have allegedly reached a tentative agreement that could pave the way for lifting U.S. sanctions on Venezuela's oil sector if democratic elections are held in the country. Meanwhile, Venezuela's opposition is holding a primary on October 22nd to elect the candidate to run against Maduro. The government has banned frontrunner Maria Corina Machado from running for office next year, a move reportedly condemned by Washington. Thanks for the facts, Scott. We're going to start to spin with a narrative A provided by Telesur. The agreement is a significant success for Venezuela's future as a sovereign state. The fact that both sides agreed on political and electoral guarantees is also a victory for the Maduro government, as these provide the framework for peaceful elections under the Venezuelan constitution and without Western interference. However, what was achieved in Barbados is only the first step toward a much broader pact. Hopefully, the deal will provide Venezuela with long-term stability. El País brings us narrative B. The agreement is a glimmer of hope for Venezuela, but it remains to be seen whether Maduro will follow through on the agreed-upon electoral process, including establishing a procedure to lift the bans that prevent his primary opponents from running. Given Venezuela's deep social and economic crisis, which the repressive regime is responsible for, Let's hope Maduro doesn't try to hold on to power again through rigged elections, despite international observers. The international community must remain vigilant for the sake of Venezuela's future. And the Metaculous Prediction community has an opinion. They think that there's a 40% chance that there will be a civil war in Venezuela before 2050. A report out of the UK states that ethnic cleansing was committed in Sudan's Darfur. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, News Central Africa, Arab News, Independent, and UN News. The British Broadcasting Corporation, or the BBC, has reported that since its conflict began in April, at least 68 villages in Darfur, Sudan, have allegedly been set on fire by rebel armed militias as part of a process of ethnic cleansing. The data, gathered by the Center for Information Resilience, or the CIR, which is partly funded by the UK government, uses NASA heat recognition technology to detect fires. After that, satellite imagery is used to find whether these fires were located in known population settlements, with the CIR team then searching social media to connect the data with videos of villages being burned and looted. Commenting on the analysis, the UK's Minister for Africa, Andrew Mitchell, claimed that the data contained all the hallmarks of ethnic cleansing. The culprits are believed to be the Bani Halba group, which is loosely associated with the Rebel Rapid Support Forces, or the RSF, 
However, the RSF, having frequently denied any connection to the violence, has requested a third-party probe. Mitchell's comments are the first time the British government has used the term ethnic cleansing to describe the situation in Darfur, with Sudan reportedly seeing the displacement of approximately 5 million people since the conflict began. The conflict is between the RSF, a paramilitary group led by General Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, and the Sudanese army, led by the head of the Sudanese ruling council, General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan. While both were part of the ousting of a civilian government during an October 2021 coup, plans to integrate the RSF into the army as part of a transition back to democracy have led to violence. An alert from the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, or the UNHCR, has reported that almost 4,000 people have died, with approximately 8,400 people injured since the conflict began six months ago. UNHCR spokesperson Eugen Bien has claimed that many of the casualties are believed to have been targeted because of their ethnicity. Thanks, Adam. The Hill brings us Narrative A. Evidence is mounting that there's an ongoing campaign of ethnic cleansing in Darfur. While there's still only allegations, it seems likely that the RSF has imposed the most horrifying human rights abuses against civilians, including rape. Without drastic and immediate change, Sudan and Darfur will be plunged back into the depths of a dark humanitarian crisis, with the non-Arab Mosulate demographic at extremely high risk. And the Sudan Tribune has a narrative B. Marginalized and oppressed minorities in Sudan must not be forgotten, and equal citizenship and unity and diversity must be promoted, or the conflict will never cease. With both sides guilty of committing violence against civilians, respect for human rights must be at the forefront of any peace agreement, while any change must acknowledge the underlying causes of this conflict and make efforts to establish a truly democratic society. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, they predict a 50% chance that over 10,000 people will die in the Sudan conflict in 2023. The U.S. accuses the PRC Air Force of risky behavior in the Pacific. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Manila Times, Al Jazeera, Manila Standard, and Sky News. The U.S. military on Tuesday accused the Chinese Air Force of orchestrating a concerted campaign of dangerous and provocative maneuvers against American military planes in international airspace. U.S. Assistant Secretary of Defense for Indo-Pacific Affairs Eli Ratner warned, this type of operational behavior can cause accidents, and dangerous accidents can lead to an inadvertent conflict. Ratner also alleged a sharp increase in coercive and risky operational behavior in the East and South China Seas, noting an incident in January where a PRC jet flew hundreds of miles per hour towards a U.S. aircraft flying in international airspace. The Pentagon, which is set to issue its annual China Military Power Report, has already released footage of 180 encounters with Chinese aircraft over the last two years. According to Ratner, one incident during which a clearly armed Chinese jet came within 30 feet of a U.S. asset is part of a more systemic issue, adding that China is also engaging in such provocations on land against our Indian partners. China and India share a long border that has included skirmishes and military casualties on both sides. The growing tensions between Washington and Beijing come as the U.S. has played a role in the Ukraine war and is now sending carrier strike groups and amphibious ships to support Israel. 
Despite the U.S.'s other engagements, Admiral John Aquilino, head of U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, said Tuesday that America is still prepared to deter China. Ratner blames the incidents on China declining the U.S. invitations to open lines of military-to-military communication at the most senior levels. Also noting that Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin has spoken publicly and privately with allies and partners, and frankly, privately with PRC counterparts. The Pentagon's statements came a day after Canada said a Chinese fighter jet flew within five meters, that's 16 feet, of a Canadian military plane over international waters near North Korea. In response, Beijing accused Canada of an illegal intrusion into contested airspace with Japan. Thank you, Scott. We're going to start this with an anti-China narrative provided by the U.S. Department of Defense. It's bad enough that China has risked the safety of U.S. aircraft and personnel almost 200 times, but when you include its behavior toward other countries, that number rises to nearly 300. China doesn't care about the rules of international airspace and thinks it's acceptable to conduct reckless flight maneuvers as some kind of show of force. This could easily result in a physical military conflict, something neither Beijing nor Washington wants. And the pro-China narrative comes from the Global Times. By issuing this absurd statement, the U.S. actually exposed itself as the aggressor in this airspace situation. The reason Beijing has flown aircraft near its U.S. counterparts is because Washington, in 2022 alone, conducted over 600 close space reconnaissance missions using spy planes. It's the U.S. that disregards China's national sovereignty rights, not the other way around. This is yet another continuation of the U.S.'s xenophobic anti-China rhetoric. It sounds to me like Top Gun Maverick just came out on DVD in China. Yeah, I, but my uh, my wife talks about how her little brother used to, uh, when he would like watch Ninja Turtles, he would start doing you know play karate. When he would saw the Rocky movies, he would start play boxing. Like so that you know China. Uh, releases uh, Top Gun Maverick, and they're flying there. They got a need for speed all the time. They sudden. got a need for speed. You think they're playing a uh, um, little volleyball on the beaches and they're short um, um, denim shorts, too? I, I mean, I think they were doing that anyway. I know I am. It has <laughs> nothing to do with the movie. You're part of that China um, a volleyball, the beach volleyball league? I would be the tallest volleyball. I'd be a dominant volleyball player in China. <laughs> I'd be the tallest. High five. Yeah, yeah really high. <laughs> News out of Hong Kong, where same-sex couples have been awarded public housing rights. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, ABC News, LGBTQ Nation, Hong Kong Free Press, France 24, and The Standard. On Tuesday, a Hong Kong court ruled that same-sex couples had the right to rent and own public housing, striking down existing government policies it termed discriminatory in nature. Upholding two previous rulings, Backing subsidized housing benefits to same-sex couples, the court said the housing authority's policies violated the constitutional right of equality, adding the differential treatment is, quote, a more severe form of indirect discrimination than most cases. Previously, the housing authority had refused the application of a gay couple, married in Canada, to rent an apartment. Later, it denied joint ownership rights to a government-subsidized apartment to a same-sex couple married in Britain. In the first case, the housing authority claimed the relationship fell outside the ordinary understanding of husband and wife. In the second, it refused to recognize same-sex couples as spouses or family members. Though Hong Kong doesn't recognize same-sex marriage, its courts 
have granted the LGBTQ community piecemeal victories, including striking down government policies on visas and taxes. Following Tuesday's ruling, LGBTQ activists expect the Hong Kong government to formulate an alternative framework for recognition of same-sex marriage within three years. Thanks for that report, Adam. We have a left narrative spin from the South China Morning Post. The Hong Kong court's ruling will go a long way in easing the lives of the city's LGBTQ community. The government must bear responsibility for institutionalizing a more liberal approach to the rights of same-sex couples and use its power to end entrenched discrimination. And left narratives are usually followed up with right narratives. We've got one here provided by The Independent. Acknowledging same-sex unions as marriage undermines the traditional institutions in Hong Kong. It undercuts the concept of family as initiated through traditional marriages. It is important to recognize long-standing and historic values of custom and culture. And opposing narratives are often followed by nerd narratives. This time, Metaculus predicts there's a 50% chance that the first same-sex couple will have a child that is produced by the sperm of one parent and the egg of the other by October 2040. You know, it's interesting that one of the longest uh, historic recorded nations in the world is so far behind in something something like this. Yes, someone check with Egypt. You know, it's a it's a race on uh, on who's more progressive. <laughs> a Georgia deputy kills a man who was wrongly imprisoned for 16 years. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NPR Online News, Reuters, CNN, and BBC News. Leonard Allen Cure, a black man who was exonerated after serving 16 years for an armed robbery conviction, was shot dead by a Georgia sheriff's deputy Monday during a traffic stop. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation said Cure was driving to Florida on Monday morning to visit his mother when a Camden County deputy stopped him because he was speeding. The GBI described Cure as compliant with the officer's commands until his arrest began. Preliminary findings by the GBI detail an altercation that involved the officer, who was unharmed, using a stun gun and baton on Cure before firing his weapon. Emergency medical personnel were unable to save Cure, who was pronounced dead at the scene. The Camden County Sheriff's Office has asked the GBI to conduct an independent investigation and submit it to the district attorney for review. Cure gained national recognition when he was released from prison in April 2020 after serving more than 16 years for a 2003 armed robbery in Broward County, Florida. He filed one of the first petitions to Broward's newly created Conviction Review Unit, which determined Cure was most likely innocent. Thank you, Scott. The spins are going to start with a left narrative provided by Rolling Stone. This is a tragedy that epitomizes the deep systemic racism against black men in America. Cure barely got three years of freedom before law enforcement took his life. Police abuse continues to be a scourge of U.S. society. An investigation must lead to reform so Cure doesn't die in vain. And the New York Post brings us the right narrative spin. Evidence suggests the sheriff's deputy did not intend to kill Cure. He tried other means to subdue the suspect before firing his weapon. The GBI will conduct its investigation and we shouldn't jump to conclusions before it's complete. Cure had a difficult life, but the police should be considered innocent for now until other proof surfaces. The Super PAC supporting Tim Scott has canceled its TV ad blitz. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Fox News, Washington Post, and Politico. 
The trust in the Mission PAC, which is backing Senator Tim Scott, the Republican from South Carolina, for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination, has canceled all of its $40 million worth of upcoming television and digital ads. In a memo obtained by the press, the PAC, known as the Tim PAC, explained how it isn't going to waste its money because the electorate isn't focused or ready to consider anyone other than former President Donald Trump, the current GOP frontrunner. Instead of the ads, which were slated to run in the early voting states of Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, the PAC said it will fully fund its current self-centered grassroots and door-knocking campaigns. Scott's $22 million from his Senate campaign gave him a cash advantage over his non-Trump rivals, but he has yet to break through in polling for a race that has long featured Trump ahead of the pack, with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis a distant second. In a Washington Post polling average for September and October, Scott was registered at 3%. A CBS News U government poll in September had him at 6% in Iowa and 5% in New Hampshire among likely Republican voters. Scott has dismissed questions about whether he intends to withdraw from the race, and his campaign responded to questions about the PAC's memo by saying the campaign was built for the long haul. Thanks, Adam. The Republican narrative comes from Washington Examiner. No one can blame Tim PAC for scaling back its spending as GOP voters have remained enthralled with Trump while Scott hasn't been able to move up in polling. His bigger concern should be meeting the requirements for the next GOP debate, a problem some of his rivals also have. In the long run, though, it might be worth sticking in the race in case there's a need for an experienced, prepared alternative to Trump. And MSNBC is going to provide the Democratic narrative. This move by Tim Pack just shows Scott's campaign is in a free fall. It was truly doomed from the start, as his message of fiscal responsibility was never going to resonate with an electorate that's devoted to Trump. It's ironic that it's now Scott's donors who are being careful with their money while his polling numbers linger on the low single digits. And we have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's an 88 percent chance that Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee for the 2024 presidential election, according to the Metaculus prediction community. Adam, I was reading today that uh, it looks like RFK Jr.'s presence as an independent candidate, people were wondering, would that affect Biden more? Would it affect Trump more? It looks like from polling, it looks like it's hurting Trump more. And with uh, RFK, approximately 16 percent means Biden gets close to an easy victory if things stay the way they are right now. RFK Um, Jr. just seems to be selling the same kind of stuff that Trump was selling just as an independent now. So, yeah, I am in the same boat that I think it's going to end up hurting Trump a little bit more. I mean, it's so weird that such a dyed in the wool Democrat, you know, you know, it's just seemed like he was going to be the Ross Perot to Biden's uh, George H.W. Bush. But I guess it might be the other way around. Wouldn't that be something? He's just got something about him that people either you like him or you hate him, I think, is what it is. Well, you know, you know what? Let's say all the things that I just said are true. Then you would imagine that Trump could move to try to remove him from the race by offering him some kind of cabinet position or, you know, maybe even a, a place on the ticket or something. Oh, if he if he pulls in RFK Jr. as a running mate. Yeah. Or or just some way to get him out. Either Biden or Trump is going to lose 10 or 15 percent of the vote. They're 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 cooked. Trump hasn't announced any, as I understand it, Trump hasn't announced any kind of running mate yet. No. It's definitely not going to be Pence. No. So there's a spot there. 
Now then, the one wonders, would RFK even be interested in engaging with the Trump administration? Probably not. It's so. like an upcoming reality show that we're all looking forward to, but not really. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'm, I'm going to tune in. That, that's, <laughs> I mean, as if we have a choice, we have to read about it every day, but... Uh, well, we do get a choice. We get a we get a vote who gets voted out of the island at the end, and then they'll get mad and not leave the island. But we island. don't have a choice you know. not to watch the show. Plus, it's we're also it's our job too. So oh yeah, it is our job, too. isn't it? <laughs> X tests a one dollar annual fee for basic features. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Variety, Wall Street Journal, Al Jazeera, Guardian, The New York Post, and Rolling Stone magazine. On Tuesday, social media site X, formerly known as Twitter, began testing a new subscription model, charging new users in New Zealand and the Philippines a one-time annual price of $1 for the most basic functions. The Not a Bot subscription plan is an attempt to address the issue of bots on the site, with the company saying it hopes to reduce spam, manipulation of our platform, and bot activity. Announcing the decision, Elon Musk wrote, it's the only way to fight bots without blocking real users, adding, this won't stop bots completely, but it will be 1,000 times harder to manipulate the platform. According to X, those who opt out of the fee will be limited to viewing posts, watching videos, and following accounts. Current users, however, will remain unaffected during the trial. Since its debut in 2006, the platform has been available to users free of charge. When Musk took over the company last year, he outlined his goal to get rid of bots and in May claimed to have removed at least 90%. In addition to the new Not A Bot plan, the company charges $8 per month for its X Premium, which allows users to modify content within an hour after posting, offers prioritized rankings of users' posts, and expands a post's character limit from 280 to 25,000, among others. Thank you for laying out the facts on that story, Scott. We're going to start the spin with a narrative A provided by Quartz. Musk may be pitching a dollar subscription as a mechanism against unruly bot activity, but it may, in fact, be fueled to kickstart his everything platform goals that will include e-commerce and micropayments. Equally as important, the fee is unlikely to actually put a dent in X's bot problem, but could isolate many users who don't have access to a bank account. And TechCrunch brings us narrative B. While the $1 fee alone may not be enough to bring an end to X's disruptive bots, it's a good start. With the rapid advancement of AI, new and improved methods will be needed to target the scams. And this subscription fee is just one of many ideas that, in tandem, may very well offer a solution. And the nerds have an opinion. They think that there's a 50% chance that the market capitalization of X will be at least $31.4 billion dollars in January 1st, 2025. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. What's your consumption of, of Twitter at this point, uh, Adam? I use it. I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a staunch Elon follower. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I will pay. I will pay to get the, the, the feed. I, I love Elon. Right, Elon? <laughs> I'm in love with you, babe. Fight the good fight, brother. How about you, Scott? <laughs> oh, not a fan. Not a fan. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> just, just All right, Scott. All right, Elon, you know who to target. Uh, this guy. This guy right over here. Get this guy. Yep. Yeah. In our final story today, Amazon announces that it's going to be testing its drone prescription delivery service. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Cleveland.com, CBS, Fierce Healthcare, CNBC, and Associated Press. Amazon has announced a test program that will use drones to deliver medical prescriptions to patients by dropping packages on customers' doorsteps within 60 minutes of placing their order. 
The e-commerce giant announced Wednesday that the pilot drone delivery service will start with customers in College Station, Texas, allowing them to receive the deliveries from Amazon Pharmacy at no additional cost. Amazon Pharmacy is partnering with the company's drone service, Prime Air, which began its commercial deliveries in College Station last December. Residents of the city will now have the option to select delivery by drone when checking out on Amazon Pharmacy. Eligible customers will have access to more than 500 medications, as well as treatments for ailments such as asthma and the flu. Amazon launched its full-service pharmacy in 2020 and has been working on drone delivery for years. Despite some difficulties, Prime Air says the drones are equipped with cameras that allow them to identify objects such as people and animals. The pharmacy drone is programmed to fly with a delivery center with a secure pharmacy and will travel to the customer's home before dropping a padded package from 13 feet, almost 4 meters in the air. Prime Air has been testing drone deliveries in College Station and Lockford, California, and the company says it will launch drone operations in a third U.S. city as well as locations in Italy and the U.K. While Amazon Prime already delivers some medications within two days, Pharmacy Vice President John Love says that doesn't help customers who have acute illnesses. CVS has also tried partnering with UPS to deliver prescriptions via drone in North Carolina, but it ended the program in 2019. Narrative A comes from Forbes. Amazon continues to amaze as it announces a revolutionary program that will deliver medications to customers' homes via drones. It's hard to properly convey just how disruptive this feat is to the pharmacy industry, but it is a testament to Amazon's planning and ingenuity. Since the COVID pandemic, the global healthcare system has been severely strained, and patients have had to deal with understaffed pharmacies and prescription shortages. Amazon's latest program will add even more value to consumers. Narrative B is provided by TechCrunch. Amazon's announcement of drone deliveries of medication is certainly a novel development, but it has a long way to go before it can be hailed as some game-changer. Amazon has long teased drone delivery, and it has seen mixed results over the years, with many regulators taking aim at the supply chain Goliath. After years of promises, Amazon will test operations in one U.S. city. That's nice, but that doesn't change everything for the massive pharmaceutical industry, Let's see how the pilot deliveries go before making any sweeping declarations. And the nerd narrative from Metaculus claims there's a 50% chance that Amazon will deliver some products by drone by August 2025. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, October 19th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers, and we figure out which ones are about the same stories. And for each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Verity, visit our website, verity.news. You can also download the Verity app from the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Scott Wallace, inviting you to join us next time on Verity. Verity.